0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit CitizensChurch.com. Good morning, Citizens Church. I hope by now that you already have your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 2. This morning will be in verses 16 through 23. Before we turn our attention to Colossians, I just want to make uh, a few comments in response to everything that's going on In our world with COVID-19. I know that for uh, many of you, it's possible that the last week has been the most difficult since uh, all of this began. Uh, And then I know that based on reports that are coming out, it's likely that the next few weeks will be the most difficult since all of this started. And so uh, what I want to invite is if you, in this, find yourself in need, Like, we cannot promise, obviously, that you won't lose your job, or if you already lost your job, that you'll get your job back. We can't promise that uh, you won't get sick and that you'll stay healthy. But what we can, as the church, offer is that you do not have to go through this alone, and you don't have to walk through this by yourself. And so what I'm asking is that if you find yourself in need, if you find yourself needing prayer, if you find yourself needing uh, guidance or counsel, how how to navigate these really confusing and and difficult times, if you find yourself in need physically, financially, would you please make those needs known to us as the church? You can email us requests at citizenschurch.com and email us and and someone from our church will respond to you. Uh, It is the responsibility of the people of God to put the heart of God on display always, but especially in times of crisis and suffering. We believe that God cares about what you are going through, and we believe one of the ways that God demonstrates that care most clearly is by showing his care to you through his people. So whether you have been a member here for a decade, or maybe you're tuning in for the first time, would you consider making those needs known to us? And to that point, if you uh, are in this crisis, if you find yourself able to give, if you find yourself with the resources to be able to share with others, would you consider uh, giving to Citizens Church? Maybe you already give, and you'd consider increasing your giving. Maybe you uh, have thought about starting to give, and we just ask that now would be the time that you do that. Our church has been using the resources that God has given us to meet needs both inside of our church and outside of our church. We've been using those resources to help those uh, who are being most affected in this time. Right now, there are thousands of medical masks being shipped uh, here to us so that we can distribute to hospitals and medical professionals that we have relationships with because we believe that God cares about this need and that God is near to the brokenhearted. And so uh, if there are those of you out there in this time able uh, to give, uh, we ask that you would consider doing that. Thank you. We love you. I'm eager to see how God is going to continue using us as his people to shine bright in this dark time. Colossians 2, starting in verse 16, 16 through 23 If you read it at home, then you'll notice there's a lot of uh, maybe obscure language in there, a lot of unfamiliar language in there. We are coming back to this book after having been away from it for a few weeks, and and even though we come back to a passage that's complex, uh, and even though we come back to a passage that, that may be a little bit difficult to understand at first glance, what we'll see is that we get to draw out of this complex passage a very simple life-giving truth, and here's what it is. Christian, you are in Christ, and what that means, because you're in Christ, you do not have to earn God's love, and you do not have to prove God's love. That's where we're going in our time together. Uh, Like many of you, I'm sure life has looked different for my family these past uh, few weeks. There are things that we used to do a lot that we don't really do uh, anymore because of, you know, staying at home. And then there are things that we used to not do as much that we have found ourselves doing a lot more of, like ordering takeout or doing family movies. And one of the things that we have started doing a lot more uh, is taking walks around our neighborhood obviously maintaining social distancing and exercising caution, but just getting outside, walking around our neighborhood. And, and we have three kids, and our three kids have gotten to where they do the exact same thing every time we go on a walk. Our nine-year-old will ride his scooter. Our uh, six, uh, six-and-a-half-year-old, as she likes to remind me, uh, will Walk the dog or pull the dog, really. And then our almost two year old, Ayla, our youngest, uh, she rides in the stroller, and either me or Carrie uh, pushes her. Now, Ayla is all girl. She is uh, dainty and she loves to do dress up and she loves to wear her mom's shoes. She is incredibly sweet. Uh, when she was younger, I thought she was just sweet to me, and turns out she's sweet to everybody, which is a little frustrating. Uh, but she uh, loves, when we go on these walks, she loves all the flowers. And so what she started to do, because now is the time of, of the season where all the flowers are starting to come out. Uh, whenever she sees a flower that she wants, she just yells flower. And then she'll just keep yelling flower until either me or her mom goes and picks the flower for her. And so that's what we'll do, unless it's in somebody's garden or something. And so right now, the flowers that are all over the place are those yellow uh, dandelions. I think they're actually a weed, but but she loves them. She thinks they're pretty. And so if she sees one of the dandelions, she'll just yell at it, flower, until me or Carrie goes and picks it for her. And when we pick it for her and give it to her, she gets this huge smile on her face, and then she just squeezes it with excitement and uh, gratitude, I guess. Well, here's what we learned. Those flowers, the dandelions, uh, many of them uh, have ants in them. There's something about the flower that attracts the ants. There's something that the ants will feed off of in the flower, and so they'll crawl on it, and then they'll kind of hide in it and then just feed off of this flower, which uh, creates a problem for us because if we take that and we give it to little Ayla, she's going to squeeze that flower, and if she did that when it's full of ants, then what we wanted for her to enjoy, what we were giving to her because she thinks it's pretty and, and she wants to have it, would attack her. And uh, it would turn into something obviously very uh, uncomfortable for her. And so what we have to do is when we go up and we we pick up these flowers, you have to look first, and I'll I'll look and see if there's ants on it. And if there are, most of them just have a few. I will brush them off or I will pick them out or something like that, and then I will go and give her the flower so that she can enjoy it, so that it won't hurt her. And and that little scene, that little act, um, is a metaphor for what happens in the passage that we're in this morning. It's a metaphor for what Paul begins talking about in verse 16 all the way through verse 23. And so if you'll remember with me where we have been in the book, chapter 2 in this letter, Paul begins talking about who we are. Chapter 1 was who Jesus is, image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, and, and, and what Christ has done in dying for us and reconciling us to him, And then chapter 2 is because of who Jesus is and because of G- who, what Jesus has done, this is who you are, right? And so one of the phrases thread throughout the entire letter, one of the major themes of the book of Colossians is that you are in Christ. That language is peppered throughout, in Christ and with Christ and in Christ. And so um, what we have said... Is that there are few questions in life as important as who are you? Who do you believe what do you believe is true about you? What is it that makes you who you are? What is it that's most true about who you are? And how do you determine that, right? Is it what I do? Is it what I have? Is it my personality? Is it my past? Is it my relationships? And for us as Christians, those things matter. But being in Christ is the most foundational, important, unchanging, formative part of who you are. And so, if we could go back uh, to the image that we've used to help capture this, this triangle that we've looked at a few different times. And what this is is a template that captures who you are, your identity as a Christian. When you become a believer, you're in Christ, and that's that bottom layer. It's not earned, it is gifted. And then out of being in Christ grows your character, patience, and love, and forgiveness. That's that middle layer. And then out of that character, we live uh, our roles. It's our relationships, our vocation, being a husband or a wife or a mom or a dad or an employee. And this is the template for every single Christian answer to the who am I question. So beginning in chapter 2, we've been at that bottom layer been answering the question who you are in Christ And if you a few weeks ago we saw in verses 9 through 15 how that's filled in, how that's expounded on in Scripture is just so freeing and so beautiful. what it is to be in Christ is to um, to already be filled, meaning, Everything that you've been looking for, you've, you have and you've found in Jesus. It means you already belong. The acceptance we all crave, we already have in God. It means you've already been forgiven. You're no longer defined by your sins and your failures. It means you've already won. The, the things that, that are most um, threatening in life, the things that we most fear in life, has already been uh, defeated. And if I was to distill your in-Christness from Scripture— And all that's been said, if I was to distill it down to just a simple truth, it's this. In Christ, you are loved by God. You're loved by God. That at the core of who you are, Christian, is one who is loved by God in Jesus. And out of that, you're free to live knowing that you're loved and valued and forgiven never have to question where you stand with God. You never have to look for love and meaning outside of him. You are in Christ. So I have a question. Is that ever a struggle, believing that, living out of who God has declared you to be in Jesus? How many uh, became a Christian and, and in an instant began living your life as one who's loved and forgiven, and and you've never questioned that, and you've never turned from that. How many, you learned this lesson once, and you have got it ever since, right? I can't see you, but I know that you're not raising your hand. Here's why. The bent of the heart, my heart, your heart, and the scheme of the enemy is to attack, and to attack at the level of our in-Christness. It's to call into question who we are in Christ. It's to whisper at who you are, to whisper at your very identity the question, does God really love you? If the gift of who we are in Christ is the flower, every single Christian, for every single Christian, there are lies and doubts that crawl onto what is beautiful and threaten that gift. And that's why the tone changes here in verse 16. That's why Paul begins to warn this church. If you read it at home, you read this. Let no one judge you regarding days and food and drink. Let no one disqualify you around worship of angels. Why would you live your life by do not handle and do not taste and do not touch? And all of that is a response to something that's happening in this church in Colossae. There were uh, things being said and taught that attack and call into question who these men and women are in Jesus. It's one of the main reasons this letter exists. One of the main reasons this book of the Bible is written is because the pastor of this church goes and finds Paul in prison. and says, man, you wouldn't believe what people are saying and what our people are believing, and what's under attack is that they are loved by God and that they are secure in Christ. And so Paul writes this letter to wage war against those lies. We're not sure who exactly is saying these things. It seems like there's some sort of Jewish influence trying to tell these Christians they have to observe Jewish practices, and a lot of that is going to land as foreign to us. And because it's foreign to us, we could check out, because that's probably not what's throwing you off right now. It's probably not causing your struggle right now. You probably didn't wrestle this week with whether or not you should keep Jewish food laws. If you're like us, you ate whatever the store still had in stock, right? You probably didn't call someone in your home group and confess that you worshiped an angel again or something like that, right? But here's what we'll see. Don't wanna get lost in that. The rules are different. The details and circumstances are different. But the lies are the same are the same now as they were then. Every church, every Christian has had to fight to believe what is true about us in Christ, and that fight has included staving off the lies that would lead us to doubt what God says and lead us to doubt that God actually loves. That's why Paul says in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by empty lies based on human tradition that lead to slavery, And he's writing that. He's saying things like, don't be enslaved to Christians, to those who are in Christ. In my 12 or so years in ministry, in my 27 or so years of following Jesus, if I think about my conversations with God about me, or I think about my conversations with others about God so Much of the struggle in the Christian life boils down to this question. Does he really love me? Am I really in Christ? Am I really who God says I am in Jesus? And that's true. And because that's true, would you see something here, friends? Would you see how kind God is? Like me giving the flower to my daughter in love, first removing what would hurt her and first removing what would threaten her, and first removing what would tarnish the gift that I want to give her. Here we see God, through his word, wanting me and wanting you to believe who we are in Jesus. In these verses that we're about to walk through, are God brushing away, removing, crushing, and confronting the lies that would attack that, that we might enjoy the gift. Here are the two lies he goes after the lie that you have to earn God's love and the lie that you have to prove God's love. Verse 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in regard to food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Here's some of the language that may be foreign. The food, drink, festival, what does all that mean? Well, the people of God God in the Old Testament uh, were given certain rules, and a lot of those rules would fall into diet and days. And so there was a diet that you had to observe, different uh, foods to eat and not eat, different drinks to drink and not drink, and then certain days you needed to observe, whether they were festivals or uh, uh, every week observing the day of Sabbath. And, And a very important theological point is made here, Paul says, Jesus has changed all that. They were the shadow. Those rules around diets and days, those were the shadow. Jesus is the substance, and it means they pointed to Jesus. And so the purity and the rest and the holiness represented by the laws around food and drink and days, uh, all of that purity and all of that rest and all that holiness is found and fulfilled in Jesus. They were the shadow pointing to Jesus, uh, that we might have a greater understand understanding of the substance, which is Jesus. Now, it's not saying that there is anything wrong with people observing these things, but that's not what's happening here. That's not the threat here. Some were saying to this church, or even in this church, that your salvation depended on observing these things and keeping these rules. Your being in Christ depended on. It. He says, "Let no one pass judgment." That word judgment is a salvation word. It also means let no one condemn. And so based on all that, if I were to offer it a different way, let no one tell you you have to earn God's love through religious action. That's the truth. That's the warning. Let no one tell you that you have to earn God's love through religious action. And it's just one of the most common struggles and one of the most common lies that says to the Christian, you have to earn the love that's already been given. And for this church, it's what to eat or not eat and what to drink or not drink. And the rules are different, but the lie is the same. What has not changed in 2,000 years is the tendency of religious people like me and like you to measure God's love for us by how good we have been at doing religious things. That lie will attack the beauty and truth of who you are in Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand. There are practices that I hope uh, fill your day and fill your week and fill your month there are things, that, it's so much of what we talked about the last few weeks. One of the things I hope that God is doing in all of this is calling us to return to the practices that remind us of our need for him and that point our eyes and our affections on him. So prayer and Bible reading and, and times of community, what you're doing right now in worshiping as, as, as unique as it is, doing it this way, worshiping with a local body of believers, those things are good and right and important, but all of that is done as someone who is already loved. All of that is done as someone who is already in Christ, already accepted and forgiven. All of those things are from salvation, not for salvation. But there's this light that twists that and says to me and to you that the better you are at these things, the more loved you are by God, the more in Christ you are, because there is love from God to earn. And look at me, that's just not true. Let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one condemn you. I need to define that a little bit more, and this is really important. The no one here includes yourself because the most condemning voice in my experience for most Christians is not an outside voice, it's an internal one. It's that internal voice of condemnation and shame that says, I'm not doing enough and I don't love enough, which means I'm not loved by God and I'm not who Jesus says I am because if I was, then obedience would be easy and reading my Bible would always be fun. And underneath that is this lie that God's love is something I have to earn. And if it has to be earned, then my life with God, hear me, will be marked by joyless, fear-filled attempts to please God. Imagine with me that uh, if I lived in my marriage the way many of us operate with God, if one day I wake up and I'm just not really sure how Carrie feels about me or where I stand with her, and so I'm just going to take care of the kids and hope that she's watching that, and then I'm going to cook all the meals, which which nobody in our home wants, and I'm going to do all the laundry, and all the while... I'm a little bit sad and a little bit insecure and a little bit frustrated and a little bit stressed, and so I uh, buy her some flowers, and maybe I write her a little note, and I do the dishes, and all the while, a little sad, and you can tell that there's uh, things are not well, right, but I'm not sure where I stand with her, how she feels about me. And so finally, Carrie, observing all of this, comes up and says, hey, what's wrong? And I say, what do you mean, what's wrong? I've been doing all these things, and haven't you seen all that I'm doing for you? And she says, yeah, but you don't seem well. Like, you seem upset. Why are you doing all this? And if I was to look at her and say, you know, I just hope that you marry me one day. I just hope that one day you agree to be my wife. How strange would that be? This July, we'll celebrate 12 years of marriage. How silly to do all of that for love that she's already given. How silly to do all of that for a promise that she's already made. And yet, how many of us, Believing God's love is something that we have to earn. Live like that with Jesus. So I wake up and I read the Bible, or I feel bad that I didn't uh, read it later, or we wake up and, and we pray or, and later feel bad that I didn't pray as long as I should, and I, and I think about my relationship with God by this running list of things that I should do that I don't, or things that I shouldn't do that I do, and, and so it's this, you know, church attendance and saying the right things and giving money and serving, and all of it's important, and all of it has a place, but I wonder if Jesus were to come and ask, why are you doing all of this? I wonder if the honest response for many of us would not be, I just hope that you save me one day. I hope that you love me one day. I hope that one day I'm forgiven, and I hope that one day I'm accepted, and I hope that one day I'm loved by you. Christian, you are in an unbreakable covenant with the eternal God that has been sealed and secured through the death and resurrection of his perfect Son, Christian, you cannot earn God's love. It is a gift to you in Jesus. Christian, you cannot lose the love that you didn't earn. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All of your sin nailed to the cross. And the moment you repent and believe, you are fully accepted and fully loved by God. And nothing... Nothing can separate you from that love. You are in Christ. Don't try to earn the love that you've already been gifted. Verse 18, he goes on. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Okay, so we have some uh, more maybe unfamiliar or obscure language. Not sure what all is going on here because it's a bit vague and some of it sounds uh, a little weird. but there seems to be a group of people in the church or around the church who are teaching this uh, mystical, hyper-spiritual way of being a Christian and and teaching it as an accusation against those uh, believers, especially the new believers in the church. And so it would go like this, all right, you're a Christian now. Your next step in order to prove that you really are Uh, of Christ follower. You have to have visions like we have visions, and you have to have these spiritual experiences like we have spiritual experiences. And so there's this spiritual realm you can enter where you worship with angels. And unless you become like us, unless the way you love Jesus looks like us, then you are less than, or maybe you're not even a Christian at all. Paul says this is what they're doing to disqualify other Christians, to attack their in-Christness. And so let me offer it another way. If I were to translate it a bit, it would be this. Don't, when he says, let no one disqualify you, he's saying, don't believe the lie that you have to prove that God loves you by being more spiritual than those around you. Let me tell you what we see in the Bible, what the Bible tells us is that those who belong to Jesus will bear fruit in their life. They will. They'll be changed into the, into the likeness of Jesus. They will repent of sin, and, and, and we will grow in godliness, and we will use the gifts and the resources that God's given us to make much of Jesus. And, and that is evidence of a heart that belongs to God. But that happens over time. And there's much room for failure and imperfection and much grace that covers that failure and imperfection. And it's not a sprint. It's a marathon that is marked by a growing love for Jesus and love for others. And you'll see that throughout the New Testament. What you won't find... What the Bible will never say, what you'll never hear is a command that says prove that God loves you by being uh, more mature than or more spiritual than or further along than most of those around you. You'll see it condemned, which is what's happening here. You have this group of self-proclaimed elite Christians who believe that the way you prove your love for God and you prove your standing with God is by being better than others because of the visions they have and because of the uh, spiritual experiences they have. And and even though the form here, the rules, the circumstances may be different, this lie still exists. The, The lie then is the same lie now. And it says this, if you want to prove that God loves you, you need to ask this question, how am I doing compared to those around me? If you want to prove that God loves you, you look around at other people and you say, how am I doing compared to those around me? And it's just, I don't know of a more insidious lie in the Christian life. Because it's a spirituality that is not marked by Christ. It's a spirituality that's marked by comparison to others. And comparison is a plague. It's a virus that spreads throughout the whole heart in all of life, but especially when we think comparison is what proves that God loves us. And I think it's heightened in a time like now. When the world is in crisis, it's it's easy to judge how I'm doing in crisis based on how other people are doing. It's easy to, to, to measure kind of my righteous response based on how other people are responding. And, and what I'm not talking about is looking into Someone else's life in a godly way for encouragement, or looking into someone else's life who you respect uh, for for guidance or something like that. I'm talking about looking into someone else's life and judging their maturity or immaturity, or looking into someone else's life and judging their faithfulness or their failures, and walking away either feeling shame or feeling pride because you either felt less than or you felt better than, and it doesn't work. Have you ever noticed? about comparison, that it seldom, if ever, like it rarely ever increases love for Jesus. It increases a lot of things. It'll increase pride. It'll increase insecurity. It'll increase shame. It'll increase doubt. I've never known it to increase Christlikeness because, because comparison takes our, in its very nature, it takes our eyes off of Jesus And when our eyes are off of Jesus and on to others, we forget that what we are after in comparing our lives to others is what we already have in Jesus. When I live like I have to prove that God loves me, I don't grow in my love for Jesus. I only grow in my pride in myself or I only grow in my shame in myself and I always grow in contempt for others. But when I rest... When I rest in what is true in Jesus, I am freed from the pressure of being uh, more spiritual than, and I am freed from the pressure of being better than, because I remember in Jesus that when I was spiritually dead, and when I was at my worst, Christ died for me. While I was still a sin, lays down his life for me in my place, and now I'm fully accepted, and he brings me in close, will never let me go, and I have nothing to prove. Hear me, Christian, your acceptance with God has never and will never be based on anyone else's relationship with God. Let no one disqualify you. You are in Christ. You have nothing to prove. The last thing we see in this passage is that When the lie that you have to earn God's love and the lie that you have to prove God's love, when those are present, it will always lead to a life of legalism. That's what he says, starting in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations? Here's the legalism, the list. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, in asceticism, and severity to the body. Hear this, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The lie that you have to earn God's love, and the lie that you have to prove that God loves you, always leads to a legalistic life. And legalism is marked by these rules. Now listen, we all live by rules and God has rules. Legalism is not just a life that has rules in it or a life that uh, is according to certain morals. Legalism is different. Legalism is when you believe about those rules that they have power that they don't. Power to save or power to change or power to protect. And that's his point. He says they may appear wise But they have no value in stopping the flesh. No value in actually bringing change in your life. No value in actually bringing meaning in your life. But where these lies are present, you'll always be able to see uh, out of those what grows are these rules that we live by that we think are going to be the thing that brings into our life what we can only find in God through Jesus. So these aren't our rules, Our rules in our culture would not be, our legalism is not defined by do not taste, do not touch, do not handle, but it doesn't mean that we don't have them. Like if I were to to list the legalism that's present all around us, our rules would sound like this. I can't fail. I can't be found out. I can't look like I don't have all the answers. I can't look like I don't have it all together. I can't appear weak. I can't appear vulnerable. I can't live without, without my possessions or without my relationships or without my status. And all of that leads to this slavery in life. It doesn't lead to freedom. It has no value in actually making us who we want to become. It surely doesn't help us see who we are in Jesus. And I love the question of verse 20, the question that he lofts at the legalism. And, and here's where we will end. He just says this, why? Like, wh- why would you be a slave to lies and legalism? Why would you live this way? And then where does he turn their eyes? To the cross. If with Christ you died, He reminds them of the crucifixion. It's Palm Sunday. Uh, Friday is Good Friday. This is a time when Christians all around the world are remembering the death Of Jesus, And it's because it's in the death of Jesus that the love of God is just so scandalously and so robustly on display for those who love Jesus, for those who've been saved by Jesus. And so what he says here is why he turns their eyes away from the lies and back to the death of Jesus, which saves them, which they are hidden in, which makes them who they are. And look, as we process this, as we consider what the passage is is telling us, as, as maybe you talk about this in your community or in your family, ultimately what will happen is as we confront these lies, as we identify where these lies exist in our life, as we try to stave them off, it's going to invite us to ask, do I believe? Not just do I believe about me, what God says about me, But do I believe about God, what he says about himself? One of the things I love about my interaction with Ayla and the flowers is I love that she doesn't know about the ants. She has no idea, has no idea of the threat that exists. Here's what she knows. I ask for the flower and my dad gives me what I enjoy. And there is no thought in her mind that I would give her something that hurts her. There is this uh, trust that is tied to her innocence. And she just knows that I delight in giving her what she enjoys. And she just receives it because she knows that she's able, without threat, to receive that and to grab that flower and to squeeze it in her hand. And every time she just says this, he goes, thank you, dad. Do you believe, friend, do you believe that God loves you do you believe that in the gospel of Jesus, God has given you a gift that is unthreatened by the lies, that he's not offering something to you, that hidden inside it are things that are going to hurt you or things that are going to deteriorate the gift? He has offered you salvation and forgiveness and identity that you don't have to earn and you don't have to prove. It's yours to enjoy from a God who delights in loving you in Jesus. And we receive that and respond, thank you, God. Thank you, Father. We thank you, God, for loving us the way that we love you, the way that you love us. We thank you, Lord, that in you, from your heart, you're teaching us to trust that there is a love that you offer to us that we don't deserve, but we can receive because of Jesus. These are difficult times, God. It's a time marked by loss and suffering and stress and fear. I thank you that where you have us in your word right now is you have us in your word being reminded in a time of loss and being reminded in a time of difficulty that what we most need we already have and what we most need we cannot lose There's nothing insecure about who we are in Jesus. There's nothing threatened about your love for us. We cannot earn it, and we don't have a need to prove it. And so we thank you that in times of unrest, we can rest in that. We love you. Help us. Teach us. In your name we pray. Amen.